0: Let's turn our attention now to the reverse text for this week. In fact, we really have two reverse texts this week. We have been at the end of Job chapter 2, and we have skipped ahead to Job chapter 22, where we hear from one of his friends. And so today, in this time in worship, we're going to read aloud together Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that you'll find on your listening sheet. And so if you would, stand with me, and let's read this aloud together. this then is the text for today now when job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him they came each one from his own place Eliphaz the Tsemanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each one of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. May God bless the reading of his word. And as Dr. Bradley noted, you did wonderfully singing, and I must say that is the greatest name reading I've ever heard a congregation do working through that. Well done reading those names and, and getting that, that correctly. I have no idea if I read them correctly, but it sounded like you read them well. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Now, we come this week to Job's three friends. Job's three friends are the perfect embodiment of the second greatest commandment. Jesus told us first to love the Lord our God with everything that we are. And then second, Jesus taught us to love our neighbor. And here, in Job chapter two, these three friends knock it out of the park. Everything they do in chapter 2 is perfect. It's exactly where they should have been and exactly what they should have done. We find out here that Job's three friends, um, they all live abroad. They are all away, and they have different places that all of them are coming from. We have no idea how they heard. We have no idea how they got in contact with one another. Um, But they were able to communicate across the land so that they could coordinate their efforts and that they come and be near Job because that's where they needed to be. In fact, they planned that the three of them would all come together at the same time to love on their friend and help him through this tragedy. And this is perfect. Now, don't miss what's happening here. In this age, they they could have sent a letter. They could have sent word by other means. They could have sent their servants to go talk to Job and tell Job they care about him, to tell Job they prayed about him. But but they said none of that, that instead they themselves are going to get up and go. And as quick as they can, they're going to get up and make sure they can sit with and comfort their friend Job. Now, it likely took months for all of this to be coordinated as it needed to be, but they made the details work and they got there. But we don't need to miss this, that they came themselves at great risk. See, there's all kinds of serious reasons for them not to come. You see, we we can often make up excuses when we are supposed to go somewhere. We can come up with all kinds of excuses of why we don't want to go or why we shouldn't go. We make up all kinds of reasons to stay home and send others or send a note and not do what needs to be done. Sometimes those are meaningful, sometimes those are flimsy. Here in this moment with Job's friends, they had real reasons, serious things in the distance around Job that were risks that complicated this matter, and yet they still went. For one, they have no idea if Job is contagious. In fact, they likely assume that Job is contagious. We we saw last week where Job is beginning to fall apart physically. Literally, his skin is rotting off his body and falling apart. He's struggling. He's losing life itself. And this degenerative skin condition he has might be passed on to them. Yet all three of them come. They were putting their bodies on the line to come near Job. This disease was not going to keep them away from their friend. But I must tell you, more important than the physical risk, there's grave spiritual risk here too as they believed. You know, we'll note in later conversations that Job's friends have with Job that these are deeply spiritual men. They're thinking about deep theological things. They're God-formed men, and they speak to Job in those terms of being God-formed men. And as we find out later from um, Eliphaz's speech, that the common assumption, which was also their assumption, is that when someone is suffering, they are suffering because they have been caught in sin, and they are suffering because the judgment of God is upon that person. And by and large, the best thing to do if the judgment of God is raining down from heaven on somebody is to stay away from them, lest you get caught in God's punishment as a contagion. And unless God's punishment comes upon you for being one who comforts someone, God is punishing. Or so they might think. That isn't reality, but that's what's in front of him, and that's what they would believe. And yet still they went to sit with their friend to sit with Job and to be near him. All of this is real risk, the physical risk, the spiritual risk, and they they press on so that they'll comfort him. We find out later and we read in Scripture that we are called as people of the Word to weep with those who weep, to anoint those who are sick, to pray with those who are hurting, to stand near and, and be there with them as God is ministering to them through us. And so here, Job's three friends come, perfectly living out the Scriptures in Job chapter 2. You see, there's little more powerful in this life than God-given friends who care about you. That, that is a that is work of the Spirit. That is a work of God to have uh, friends who care deeply about you and friends who will bear the risk to come sit with you in the deepest pains of life. And when we hear this, when when we hear that God-given friends are a blessing straight from heaven, some of us find it hard not to sulk. And this is what I mean. We can sulk over broken and distant relationships especially in and following a pandemic where we have been separated from one another and, and torn apart from one another for two years, it's difficult for us not to sulk over broken and distant relationships. But, but let, me, let me call you this morning back to Jesus and follow him through and forward. You see, it's awfully tempting for us to make a list of those people who did not or have not come in difficult days but instead let us live out together 1st Corinthians 13 5 where we're, we're taught in this this chapter on love where, where we get the biblical example of what love is and we see there in 1st Corinthians 13 5 where love doesn't keep record of wrong it is as God wiping away sin from the earth so does love wipe out wrongs suffered instead let us be like Job's friends Let us us obey Jesus and be those kinds of friends in the Spirit rather than sulking. You see, there are people in your life right now that God is calling you to love deeply, that, that God is calling you to love proactively. Who are those people in your life that God has called you to reach out to and to love on and to show them love like you have loved yourself? Who is that one? that Jesus has called you to love. Because it might, it might be your spouse, it might be somebody on a distant continent, but love them as Christ has called you to love them. This is an act of obedience to Jesus for us is to love the people around us. It's it's living out that second greatest commandment that Jesus brings people into our lives, and he says, Follower, go and love them deeply. Show them the grace and mercy of heaven. Be there with them, to walk with them through the pain, to weep with them who weep, and to rejoice when they're rejoicing and celebrate when the days are good. Who are those that Jesus has called you to love? You know, it's remarkable what Job's friends do in this moment. And, and the way we react, um, and the way we react to those who need love is critical. See, when they get to Job, we see some, some actions that we recognize. They throw dust in the air. They weep. They tear their robes. All of these things are similar reactions that we, we saw from, from Job in chapter 1 when Job's children had died. These are the same kinds of things that, that he was doing. These were his reactions to them. And then we see Job's friends respond appropriately, but very differently than we would. In this wild turn of events that we would never try, no one says a word for seven days. Most of us, when we come to sit with somebody who's struggling, or most of us, when we step out to love as Jesus Christ has called us to love, our mouth is full of words. We can't go seven seconds in silence. And there's a, there's a reason for that. It's because the more silence, the more we have to stare at the suffering. And what we want to do is, is get ourselves talking and talk through it and find an answer or find a solution so we can get past the suffering as quickly as possible. When, when in this moment, Jesus has, has allowed and, and, and we are living in this suffering as his... And we need to sit with it and recognize what God's doing in the moment rather than rushing to, through to the other side. We talk because we want to talk our way out of the discomfort. We think the more we talk, the quicker this will be over. We want to help ease the pain in the room. But Job's friends knew. There were no words that they could say. And so they sat perfectly quiet, a perfect act of friendship. And you know it's fitting, and it's unfortunate. Because next, they open their mouths, and when they open their mouths, everything begins to unravel. In fact, the more these guys talk, the more this situation unravels. You see, first, after seven days, Job talks. This is what we, we talked about last week, where Job has this, this beautiful lament in recognizing where he is and staring at his own suffering before God. And then we get some 33 chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends, and Job and a fourth friend, and Job and God. And in all these conversations, we, we hear of God and suffering. We hear of wrath and justice. We hear of grace and mercy. You see, Job's friends would have remained perfect if they would have stayed quiet. Instead, though, what they begin to do after Job has this beautiful lament is Job's friends begin to speculate about the situation. They begin to speculate about what's in front of them, and they begin to speculate beyond their knowledge into the realms of God, and they begin to step into the role of judge and jury. So in this moment, as they begin to speak, they begin to assume God's role in this business like they know what's going on, like they know what they're doing. You know, sometimes this is hard for us to understand, but practically all of their speeches, if you go and look at at all of Joseph's three friends and then the fourth friend at the end, if you go back and you read all of their speeches, most everything that they say is, is biblical, and most everything that they say is theologically sound, yet at the same time they have no idea what they're talking about. Because they, they, they assume that role. They step into God's role as judge and jury, and they don't know the facts of the case. They don't know what's going on in Job's heart. They don't know what's going on in Job's mind. And still they said, well, we have this figured out. Let me tell you the answer to get you through this as quickly as possible. The, the problem with the friends is they sometimes just start talking. And the problem with friends is sometimes they just start spraying out information and spraying out as much information as possible so they can see what sticks. And so what you see with Job's friends is ignorant gossip comes out of their mouths that has nothing to do with what's going on. Now, let me give you another prime biblical example of this moment. It's like in John chapter 9. so when Jesus is, is healing this man born blind, and his disciples ask him, Says Jesus, well, who sinned? Was it, was it this man that sinned, or was his parents that sinned? And you see in this moment, they're assuming that the blindness that this man is experiencing is a direct result of sin. And they're saying, well, he, he must have sinned, or his parents must have sinned, something must have happened. And Jesus, in his own way, doesn't answer, but then he does. And, and the way he does is similar to a kind of lesson that we find here in Job. You see, they were... They were just kind of guessing and speculating. The disciples, the Job's friends, they're just guessing and speculating. And what you see, Job's friends, in their arguments, everything in their argument revolves completely around God's wrath. It has nothing to do with God's sovereignty. It has nothing to do with God's mercy. Everything is encapsulated in God's wrath. In fact, they lay down the truth of judgment on Job, and they, they speak it as emphatically and boldly as they know how. And they say things like this. They say, we see examples all through the Scripture of people being punished here and now for being disobedient to God. And that is true. People here and now are punished for being disobedient to God. That was so from the very beginning, even in Adam and Eve, as we read the stories in Genesis, early in Genesis, you see Adam and Eve are punished for being disobedient. Same thing as you work through the Torah. You, you, you see the curses of God being spoken. And what, what you see th- throughout the Torah is if you are obedient to God, to God, your life will flourish. If you're disobedient to God, your life will crumble over and over again, we're told of these curses. And, and Job's friends are speaking these kinds of things over him. Cursed you must be. Sin must be lurking in your mind or in your heart. It has to be for you to suffer the ways that you are suffering. And so with that theological examination, Job's friends misdiagnose Job. They've seen and they've heard about God's wrath, and so they assume that this instance must be God's wrath. They are both right and irrelevant at the same time. God is filled with judgment and whose wrath can be seen on this earth, but that has nothing to do with this situation that Job has found himself in. They are both right and irrelevant at the same time. You see, they know that Job is a good person. They were all good friends. And then we get this speech from, from Eliphaz in Job 22. There was the rest of our reverse for this week. And, and Eliphaz, his good friend here, accuses Job in chapter 22 of, of all kinds of evils. But all of these evils are just speculative things. They don't know this about Job. They're just starting to guess the kinds of sins he must have committed in his roles that he has been in. As he has led his family, as he's led his community, as he's led in his business, they were saying, well, these are the sins that businessmen commit, so these must be the sins that you. Have committed, where are they in your life? They accuse him of usury. They accuse him of taking food from the hungry. They accuse him of taking advantage of both widows and orphans. And this is now one of Job's dearest friends using scripture to condemn him for no reason. Job hasn't done any of these things, but the only thing that Eliphaz can imagine is the wrath of God in this moment. And so he lays down the truth. Which doesn't matter here. It's like he heard Job was sick in dealing with terrible calamity as the skin rots off his bones, and so he brought him a knee brace. You know, too often, we, we take it upon ourselves to be the authority where we look at a situation, we assess the situation, and we think, I've got enough information here. I can make all the decisions that need to be made. This is where Job's friends are with Job. We, we have assessed the situation. We have been with you. We have sat with you. We have heard your lament. Now let us tell you the truth. Let us be the judge. Let us be the jury. We have assessed this, and it is so. And You know, we like to do this. We like to take it upon ourselves that we're going to be authority. Every one of us in here thinks we know how we can fix what's going on in Ukraine. Every one of us in here thinks we know how to fix what's going on in politics in the United States of America. Every one of us in here thinks we know how to fix our children's lives. But let us not bathe ourselves in that kind of pride. There is only one who knows the remedy. There is only one who stands against what ails us. There is only one who can bring us through the suffering to the other side and into glory, and that is our Lord God above, and it is him alone. You know, we can make assumptions. We can scour the scriptures, but only God has all the details, and only God knows every heart, and only God knows every mind. You know, Eliphaz, he he was right. He could have given his speech that he gave to Job to anybody else, any other businessman in that community, and he would have probably been right. Because the things that he says are generally true of most men. But it's not true of Job in this moment. And Job knew it. See, Job's friends either should have kept quiet or just pointed Job to God. You see, most of what they're sharing is just about God. They're they're sort of assuming God's role, and they're making judgments. Instead of assuming God's role in making their judgments, they should have pointed Job to God. They should have been praying with him and listening to what God has to say about this situation. They were acting as if they were the ones who knew the mind of God, that knew his comings and goings, and knew what was happening in the cosmic courtrooms, and they had no clue. Their assessments and judgments were completely wrong about their friend. Let us not assume that we know where or how God is at work. Let us jump to Jesus and let him disclose the comings and goings of God. uh, John chapter 15 is a pivotal passage in the New Testament for a number of reasons. But, But one of the reasons John chapter 15 is a pivotal passage is that it Jesus begins to define friendship for us. Now, I want you to listen to this passage. It's John 15. I'm going to read 13 through 17. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This is my command, that you love one another. See, the fact remains that those close to you on this earth are going to fail you. You know, every friend that I have ever made has seen this in me. Every friend I've ever had has known days where I didn't live up, that calling, live up to that calling of being a good friend. Every friend that I've ever had has known a day where I let them down as a friend. But make no mistake, to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower, is to be a good friend. And when we have failed as a friend, we have sinned against the Lord God above So we need to ask God for his forgiveness of those moments, and we need to ask our friend for their forgiveness in these moments. And we need to point them to Jesus. Because in spite of our failures, where we have failed as friends, Jesus Christ will never forsake us. In fact, Jesus invites us into friendship with him. And and there's there's lots of things that that come with that association with Jesus and and with this this language that Jesus is using. And what you see in in John chapter 15 as this unfolds is is Jesus says, I am leaving you my Holy Spirit at the ascension. He says "The the Spirit will come and you will never be alone because the Holy Spirit is with you. And we live in that day and time where the Holy Spirit is moving and working this morning. Jesus that's a part of friendship with him is that you're never alone. This so is part of friendship with him is that your prayers are answered. And part of friendship with him is that he will disclose unto you the work of God. And with that being the case, with friendship with Jesus being on the table and, and with this work about that friendship, let us then forgive every friend who has ever failed us. Let us then, because of the work of Jesus, let us then repent of every time we have ever failed our friends. And most importantly, by the work of Jesus Christ, let us follow Jesus as a John 15 kind of friend. That we might be faithful unto the Lord, loving him with everything that we are, and at the same time, loving the people that he has put in our lives as friends whom we care about as we care about our Lord. Let us be those who follow Jesus in friendship, both with him and with others. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would transform our hearts and minds so that we become like you. Father, this this world seeps in, sneaks in to corners of our lives, and Lord, we pray that in your spirit you would rid us of those impurities, that we may follow you faithfully, to love deeply and be who you've called us to be. Because, Father, we love you. We we want to be near you. And, Father, we want to obey you. And we pray by your Spirit you would make it so. It's in the name of our Lord and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.